May God give us one mind and one heart. <clears throat> I've been in the church for almost 50 years. I've seen some good things. I've seen some ugly things. I've seen some divisions and splits and hurt feelings. I've seen people hold on to grudges for years. The church can be an ugly place. Some of that ugliness Paul was trying to deal with in Rome. He had strong people, strong believers, probably mostly Gentiles who said, you know, those old ceremonies, we don't have to follow those anymore. Christ's coming has done away with them. The weaker, probably mostly Jews, but also most likely Gentiles, who were saved out of the more esoteric mystery religions and their prohibition on drinking wine was not a Jewish thing. That was part of the Gentile issue. They said, no, we need to follow these things because true religion is not touching or touching, tasting or not tasting. So there was conflict between the two groups, and we've looked at that a bit, and I'm sure that there was some ugliness there between those two groups. Beginning several weeks ago, we looked at chapter 15, where Paul begins to show us how we can have more unity, even with differences, differences of background, differences of preference, differences of taste, in lesser things, perhaps even differences in conviction. He said first in verses 1 through 3 that we are supposed to be like the Lord Jesus, and he didn't live to please himself. That may be one of the most profound lines in the epistle of profound lines. Because remember, even the angels did his every wish, and yet he humbled himself and made it his delight to do the will of his Father in heaven. So this is put forward to us who are supposed to be disciples, which means followers of Christ, which means since we don't worship a dead man, but we are in a living, vital union with the resurrected Savior, that his self-disinterestness, his not me, not my will, Father, but thine be done, that will will be formed in us as we know him. So that life becomes less about me getting what I want and having people have to agree with me on every detail and instead being like the Lord Jesus. And that is pleasing others, putting them first, dying to ourselves. In verse 4, which we'll pick up with today, he goes to the scripture and says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Now, I think this verse is functioning on several layers. The first of which, of course, is that he has just quoted from Psalm 69.9 in verse 3. And he says, listen, these kinds of statements about Christ, think of Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22, Actually, think of all of Scripture, really. These things reveal Christ, 
reveal salvation in him and really reveal godliness to us. There are many today who say, no, scripture is the problem. This is especially a plague in liberal circles. They say scripture at best is a pointer to a vague and murky truth. What we need to get back to is, they say, just let scripture be kind of a general guide. But you need to find the truth for yourself. But that is not the view of the that the apostles had of Scripture or of their own writings. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4, 14, 37, Is anyone among you a prophet or spiritual? Let him acknowledge that the things I write to you are the commandments of the Lord. Peter called what Paul had written Scripture in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. So at one level, this is verifying. It is a good thing to use Psalm 69.9. It is a good thing to use the entirety of Scripture to understand how we are to relate to one another. But I think it is also something a little more practical, and that is, if we are all learners, then there are no masters. For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. Notice how the apostle here includes himself in that number. If we are all coming to the word as hungry men and women, desiring to be taught, we are like the angels who wanted to study the unity, the majesty, the perfection of scripture. And not any of us is a master. We are all learners. Jesus said in the Gospels, call no one among you a master, for you are all brothers. You are all servants of one master. So in bringing forward Christ as our example, that should settle the issue. But then he goes even one step further to, what's the purpose of having a Bible? So we can feel good about how much we know. So that we can keep a notebook full of sermon notes and say, okay, yeah, I've mastered Romans now or I've mastered whatever. No. These things were written so that we would learn. So that we would be shaped. So that in, that in recognizing that I am a learner, I am a disciple, that each one of us would be humble one towards another the strong would not belittle the weak. The weak would not judge the strong. But that each one of us would place ourselves under Scripture. In fact, if we have just this one spirit of the unity of the church, which probably most people today would say is less than it has been in past ages, not that we're all going to fully understand election, predestination, or even the covenant, but if all the churches, all branches of the church, all disciples came to Scripture and truly reverenced it as the very Word of God and humbly desired for God to teach them, then there would be a tremendous boost to the spirit of unity, not only in our understanding of Scripture, which is a fundamental basis of our unity, but also in our affection for one another, 
and we would want to learn from one another because it's not just me that has the mind of Christ. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, Ye, plural, all of you, share in the same spirit of truth the mind of Christ. So this isn't some egalitarian thing. There are obviously pastors and teachers, but even at a deeper level, each one of us connected to Christ has the Holy Spirit, has the mind of Christ, and must come to Scripture to be taught, to learn, and then to come to the body because we don't interpret and learn in a vacuum. We are not Petty kings and queens on the island of our own, you know, I understand everything. But we come to the body, and we are taught of one another, and we love one another. It's just wrong-headed to take a single verse of Scripture and think you can render an interpretation via your own fallible understanding. We mustn't be so self-deluded to think We can do so without the help of those great minds that have come before us or those who are even among us who have spent years studying those great minds and Scripture. Notice how this comes out very clearly into two virtues, patience and comfort. He could have mentioned any number of virtues at this point, But in this context, these two are especially vital. The patience of Scripture. What do we read when we read the Bible? We read of the sufferings and the perseverance of the saints. We read of their weaknesses and how they, you know, fell seven times. But the Lord always picked them up. We read of Abraham who lied. We read of David who fell into horrible immorality and committed murder, and yet God raised them up. We read of those who wandered in sheepskins and goatskins who lived in the dens and the caves of the earth. We read of Jeremiah who never had a convert that is recorded. We read of Job who suffered tremendously without ever really knowing why other than in it God revealed his glory to him. What do all these things teach us? They teach us patience, that God is with us in our weaknesses, that none of us is a master in an absolute sense. And as Peter said in 2 Peter 3.15, God's patience is with patience, is with us, is our salvation. Think about how patient he has been with you. And all the times you have spit in his face, and I have. We've wandered away from him, and he has called us back. You look back on things now at certain times in your life that you have said or done, and you're embarrassed by them. And when you think of them, you just want to dig a hole and cover yourself with the earth. And yet, God was patient with you. Now, notice this dynamic as we put ourselves under the authority of Scripture, and as we are studying it and wanting to understand God's will more clearly, we are going to realize more and more the glory of God's patience with us 
and then us towards one another. And that will make us patient within the body of Christ. I mean, if you study scripture or hear a sermon and then get out your gun and start shooting everyone, you haven't learned anything. One of the main lessons of scripture is that God is patient with sinners. He is long-suffering toward the weak. So, we have, so have we learned this lesson? Dads, have you learned it in your home? I, I struggled with this when my children were young. Your child does something and you sigh out loud or you get angry and you say ugly things or you stomp off or you go pout. Have I forgotten the ABCs of what I'm supposed to be doing as a disciple? Yes. Not pleasing myself because Jesus didn't, but also learning from Scripture what it teaches, and it teaches patience, endurance. So by my own words, by the way I treat my children, I draw from Scripture the power to be patient toward others, to help them to endure. Then, of course, he mentions comfort. I, I dare say, if you have been a Christian for very long, you love the Psalms because you read in them how David could be looking over a battlefield and his enemies are glaring like an army of giant reptiles sharpening their swords. And suddenly, David remembers God. And it's like, okay, let's go fight. He's just encouraged now. He's built up because if God can be for us, who can be against us? How many times have you been struggling? Maybe you wanted to give up or maybe you've been so tempted to give in to temptation and you've cried out to the Lord and Psalm 42 comes to mind. Unto the Lord you made your cry and he comforted you. He gave you encouragement. He, he bolstered you up so that even in the midst of the worst trouble and tears, you also had a joy and happiness. Because of the simple privilege of having God for your father and knowing that you're forgiven for Jesus' sake. So in context here, are we encouraging like this? Because I assure you in here, everyone who is a believer needs to be bolstered up from time to time. Needs to be encouraged. Now, remember the broader context. So here's the strong, oh, come on, you can drink that, you, you can eat that, you can go here, you can watch that. And then here's the weak. I can't believe you do this. I can't believe you eat that. How dare you? There's no way you can be a Christian because of all these secondary issues. Is that what Scripture teaches us? Scripture teaches us to be patient towards one another. Scripture teaches us to encourage, to exhort, to build up one another. So when we think about the church being one, 
we always need to remember that Scripture is the power, the very living power, the penetrating power of God that changes us so that we relate to one another, our children, our spouse, one another within the body, very differently than the world. Among other things that Scripture does, it holds up a mirror to you. So you see yourself as you really are. And if you are spending much time in Scripture, and you are not seeing yourself as poor and blind and weak and needy, you are reading a different book than I'm reading. If it is not humbling you, if you can't see that God is being so patient with you, then you are reading a different book. If it is not encouraging you, you are reading a different book. And you're reading it with the wrong spirit. This is what scripture does. Now, there are other branches of the church that surely disagree with us, even on what we would consider very significant doctrines. Take something like election or predestination. Well, in my experience... I have never run into a Baptist brother or sister who is an ardent student of Scripture, where if you remove the difficult terminology, we basically have the same view on these things, and even if theoretically there is still an offense, either because of bad teaching or prejudice, and keep in mind, prejudice goes both ways, there can still be a fundamental unity. Why? Because there was only one teacher, and that is the Holy Spirit. And he doesn't teach two different brothers, two different messages about the same doctrine, if they're truly studying Scripture. So, as we are in Scripture, and as we submit to it and learn from it, is that you? Are you learning from Scripture? When you come to the Bible, do you pray, God, teach me? I just want to hear your voice. I was made to hear your voice. This is how we're supposed to relate to God. Nowadays, the message is, no, we're made to relate to God mostly on the emotional level. So what I look for in a church is, does the music resonate with me like the music on the radio or other modes of hearing popular music today? And if I feel good about that, then I feel good about God. Well, what if someone said, where in Scripture is that ever taught, that that is the main way we relate to God? It's not there. Music is beautiful, don't get me wrong. It's like the tapestry, the drapes, the wall hanging in the temple of God. But it's not the foundation. God is a speaking God. And we relate to Him through His Word. So when we come to Scripture, we must desire to learn. Lord, teach me how much I need your patience, your long-suffering with me. So that then in turn... Lord, strengthen me by your Spirit so that I may be patient with my spouse, patient with my children, because I'm weak. I may be weak differently, but I'm just as weak. In fact, 
I may need your patience more than they need my patience because I know better and I still commit terrible sins against you. Lord, you have encouraged me through your word. Please help me to encourage others. Look at how Paul speaks of this in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 3. Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulations, that we might be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort where we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ." So why has he given you comfort and encouragement? So that you can encourage others within the body. Why has he been patient with you? So that you can be patient with others. Or do we use scripture like a club? I've learned this. I can't believe you haven't. Has your time and the word fundamentally altered your whole spirit? There is a teachable meekness in those who have truly learned from Scripture, a willingness to confront, be confronted, a willingness to confess sin, to confront sin, both sides. Paul brings this forward here because he says like Jesus, because he, this was like Jesus. Not one, of course, knew scripture like he did. And he said, learn of me. I am meek. None was bolder, and yet none was more tender than the Lord Jesus. It's funny how those things go together in the Christian character, boldness and tenderness. Where does that come from? Well, it's in your DNA. No, it's not. It's in the heavens. God gives these gifts. And when we are meek before his word, he makes us tender and he makes us bold. Remember, Jesus cleansed the temple with a whip and drove everyone out. And he also touched lepers. These are like two opposite extremes. I mean, if we had seen him that day in the temple, and he actually did it twice, once at the beginning and once at the end of his ministry. But if we would have seen him do this, it would probably have terrified us. It shocked the disciples because, in effect, it was the owner of the temple coming and cleansing it out. And on the other hand, they were just as shocked when they saw him speaking to a Samaritan woman in John 4. They were amazed. And when he touched the leper in Matthew 8, they were amazed. So this is what the word does when we meditate upon it, when we come to Scripture and say, Lord, teach me. Unless you open my eyes, I'm blind. Unless you humble me, my pride will get the best of me. Lord, teach me. I don't want to read scripture so that I can just say I've read it. 
And if that is the only reason you are reading his word, please just stop. Because you're blaspheming God and you're wasting your time. It doesn't matter if you can say to other people, I read the scriptures, if you haven't learned from scripture. And those are two different things. Two different hearts involved. Then he adds to this in verse 5 in the form of a wish or a prayer. He says, now the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded. So those two virtues mentioned in verse 4, patience and comfort of the scripture, they're really from God. Many times I have said, I need more patience. Some of you have told me you really need some encouragement. Where do those things come from? They come from the word. Please see this connection, particularly in the light of the liberal haze that has been put over the Bible today. That has even infected the evangelical church. Verse 4 teaches us that the patience and comfort the scriptures give to us is because they are God's word. And he is the giver. The Bible is not some mystical fortune cookie. It's not an ancient document of a collection of views of what man used to think about God. Holy men of old, as they were moved along by the Holy Spirit, so that to say what Paul says in Romans 15.5 is the same thing as saying God said in Romans 15.5. So when we come to scripture like this, this is God's holy word. This is just like when I read scripture or I hear it preached. It's as if the Shekinah came down, and of course, he did. Jesus came into the synagogue, and he opened up his own scroll, which was the same thing as opening himself when he opened the scroll in Isaiah and read The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. It's no wonder the church today lacks more external, visible unity. Look at expository preaching. You've got very popular evangelical gurus, avant-garde guys criticizing expository preaching, which is the way I preach. You may as well take a knife and stick it in the chest of God. Because it is his scripture of patience and consolation that comes from the God of patience and encouragement or consolation. These things are one, not essentially, but in their function. The written scriptures are God's living voice to us. So I wonder sometimes when I read it, why our pride is not humbled. It is because we don't come to it like this. We come to it like, well, you know, let me read something I'm familiar with because I just need to feel better. And I need a principle for the day. No, I don't. I need God. I need him to come down and walk and talk with me in the cool of the day. Now mediated through Jesus Christ. I need for my father to come and teach me his ways that I might walk in his paths. So the Bible is to me not just, well, I've got it and I read it occasionally. 
No, it's my life. It's my manna. It's just like the manna that led the children of Israel through the wilderness and sustained them, except it's greater. Because now the living word has come down from heaven. And he has commissioned his apostles to write his word so that the very book that we have in our hands would be available for us. Can you imagine everything that goes into us having this book? The printing press, the preservation of the monks and the scholarship of the monasteries during the medieval period. God's providential government over his enemies, preserving his word from being corrupted and burned up so that we now have this manna. It's, it's right here. God's living and breathing word. So if we neglect it, we are going to be prideful. If we neglect it, we're going to be impatient towards our children and others. If we neglect it, we're going to be frustrated with our wives and wonder, why doesn't she love me more? We'll fall into pleasing self. Why? Because nothing can break our pride except the voice of God. The voice of God, we are told in Psalm 29, breaks the cedars of Lebanon often a symbol in Scripture of the tall trees of man's pride. It breaks them. When we're confronted with God's glory and His majesty, we are broken, we are humbled, and humility is so much of the essence of our Savior and of His saving work on the cross and of the basis of unity within the body of Christ, that I have nothing that I did not receive as a gift of the holy, patient, merciful God's kindness to me in his son, Jesus Christ. And his patience, when he's taking all the sorrows of death and the terrors of hell, when he is becoming the trespass offering for our sins on the cross, and he received this and endured it to the end, he drank all the hell for us, it's as if he picked up the whole abyss of God's wrath and drank it unto himself. Patience. So that when I am in the word of Christ and his word is indwelling me, it's going to make me patient. It's going to make me want to be an encouragement to other rather than to grind them down. And why is this? It is because of an inherent power in the printed page, right? No. Because in God's providence and mercy, the printed page, the word of God has been preserved for us and it is living and it is searching to the dividing asunder of souls and spirit and of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Everything is naked and open before the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Do you know the scriptures a little bit like this? Do you come to them like this? Lord, open me. Lord, slay me before your word. Just cut me open. Show me my pride. Show me where I'm being obnoxious to other people. 
Show me where I've been living to please myself in my home or in my relationships. Father, make me like Jesus so I delight to do your will. That is why Paul can pray, may the God of patience and consolation grant you to be like-minded. It seems like an impossibility, does it not? But as long as we've got the word of God and standing before that word, his own power, his own patience with us, his own consolation or encouragement to us, that prayer is going to be answered because it's really just an echo of Jesus' own prayer. Look back in John 17. Our Lord was thinking of this on the last night before he laid down his life for us. This is a beautiful prayer for his apostles and for all believers for all times. He says in verse 19 of John chapter 21, For their sake I sanctify myself, that they also might be sanctified to the truth. Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall live, who shall believe on me through their word, that they all may be one, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. This is no bland unity for which Jesus prayed. Okay, the church will have unity and we'll all just believe that Jesus was crucified and rose again. That's all we'll believe. Everything else is superfluous. Notice he prayed there that there would be an inner penetrating. I I mean, how is the son one with the father? Scripture says, my father works hitherto and I work. Jesus' will was through the will of his Father. This is a personal oneness. And Jesus prays that the church on earth may progressively, over time, as his kingdom comes, because unity in the church grows in tandem with the growth of the kingdom, that we would have that same kind of oneness. Just let that sink in, beloved. This means that the destiny of the church is unity in the truth. That doesn't mean everyone will be Presbyterian or Baptist or Episcopalian or anything like that at all. But it means that there's going to be a working of God throughout the course of history where God's true people will share the common conviction that Scripture, Old and New Testament, are the word of God, and they will come to Scripture as hungry men and women and desire to be taught of God, and that unity is going to come to visible expression. It's not just a pretend unity, my friends. It's going to be manifested. But what's it going to take for men to manifest it? I often think of this because I've made this mistake before. It will be when everyone subscribes to the Westminster Confession of Faith, right? Then there will be unity. Now, don't get me wrong. I've made vows to and very much love the Westminster Confession of Faith. 
But before men can have unity and truth, men themselves must be changed. And how are they changed? and, And how are they changed by coming to Scripture as humble learners? That is what we need to be praying for, among other things, to see our Lord's prayer answered. Lord, make us here like-minded in this, at least that we have nothing but what you teach us, that we understand nothing but what you teach us, that we don't have any grace that you don't give to us, no patience that you don't share with us, no encouragement unless you give it to us by your Holy Spirit. And then we move towards more unity, like-mindedness and understanding and in affection. He explains in verse 6 the what and the why of this, that you may be one mind and one mouth glorify God. Remember the verses I just read in John 17. Go back there again for just a minute. John 17, this time verse 21 that they all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. God has bound up his glory in the salvation of the world with the unity of the church. Somehow as the body of Christ grows in like-mindedness, not that we are autonomous or We plug into some computer drive and everyone thinks the same thoughts all the time and in exactly the same way. But there is a common allegiance and submission and teachability before the word of God. As this thing grows, Jesus says, then the world is going to believe that you have sent me, Father. Now, why is that? I mean, that is very, that is very profound. Well, because very honestly, as long as Christians are divorcing and squabbling over secondary things and being mean to each other and suspicious towards each other, and as long as the church looks like a war camp, the world is going to look at, is going to look as us and, and look at us and say, "Listen, we can do that as good as you can. In fact, we can probably even do it better." Why would you need to come over to learn how? Why would we need to come over and to learn how to fight? We can do that just fine without you, thank you kindly. Plus, we don't have to deal with all the doctrines and all the other crazy stuff that you believe and do. So just handle your business and we'll handle ours. But if the church looks over, if the world looks over at the church, And it has done this in certain periods and says, you know, those Christians, they're not fighting. They're forgiving each other. They overlook each other's faults for good. They confront sin when they need to, but they also cover a multitude of sins with love. That's the kind of spirit that the world is going to scratch its head like some of the ancient Roman writers who said, boy, Those Christians sure do love each other. Now, I'm not sure I can believe what they believe, but it is certain they love each other. They are humble. 
Now, of course, we can only speak as we are part of this tiny field here in God's bigger vineyard. But as we, with one mind and one mouth, glorify God, think about that. When we worship God together with our brothers and sisters here, when we endeavor to be one mind and are humbled before Scripture, as we endeavor to have one mouth to glorify God, we are praising Him for His mercy. That's one of the reasons we have congregational singing, so that we can all be praising God for the same thing. That's why when there is praying going on, you need to be praying those things you hear yourself so that with one mouth we can glorify God. And as we are unified and grow in that, God's glory fills the world and men will want to come and see what God has done in his church. You might say, that can't happen. We're too insulated, too isolated. Listen. The city of man may have dreamed up all kinds of ways to try and protect itself from the gospel, but all of its control mechanisms will eventually come crashing down and men will be brought to this one thing. I have to have God or I will perish. And of course, Christians can very much accelerate this in one respect. Because what is revival, but when Christians take more serious than usual, I need God to teach me. I need to be more in prayer. You know, revival is not when we're all swinging from light fixtures. Revival is when people come to Bible studies and when we're earnest in our prayer in the home and in our prayer closet. Reformation is not always this glorious thing. Reformation is when you and me as men and women made in God's image seriously devote ourselves to delighting to do God's will and then that reformation grows and spreads to other people that we come into contact with. Now sometimes there is reformation with a capital R. I understand that. But oftentimes we think those are the only reformations. The only revivals are the ones with a capital R instead of saying, you know what? I need to take this seriously. I need to be a learner of Scripture. Meditate upon it. Love it. Learn from Scripture how much I need for God to be patient with me. Then I can be patient with my weaker brother or not judge my stronger brother. Oh, I need encouragement. Do you not think the younger men and women... The elder folks in our congregation also need encouragement. No, I don't care. I'm just going to come and take in what I need to do, and, and then I'm going to just go. In that case, we haven't learned anything. We're weak. We need to encourage each other and build one another up in our most holy faith. Then and only then will reformation be possible. Notice the, at the end of verse 5 and at the end of verse 6, he says, according to Christ, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and verse 3, even as Christ pleased, not himself. He keeps coming back to this. But I want to warn you, don't just think, okay, I'm going to do this, because you won't. 
I seem to remember 12 men who walked with Jesus for three years. And towards the end of their walking with him, and I think one of the gospel writers has this debate going on on the last night. They were still saying, Peter, do you think I'm going to be better than you? Do you think I'm going to be greater than you? Then John's mother comes and asks, Lord, can my son sit on your right and on your left hand when you come into the kingdom? And these 12 men were walking with Jesus for three years. Do you not see how much we should guard our hearts against this pride? Someone said to Augustine one time, what is the essence of the Christian faith? And Augustine replied, humility, humility, humility. He must increase, I must decrease. Now that doesn't make you a pansy. It just puts you and me in our place that we're learners, that we need to seek the unity that is like Jesus in submission to the Father's will, laying down our lives for one another. And we're all rushing to kiss his feet. You you see, if we're busy kissing the feet of Jesus, we're going to be more willing to kiss each other and be humbled by God's truth. Again, don't think you can do this in your own strength, beloved. Because the wilderness, the high trees of cedar of Lebanon, and all the pride of man can only be humbled by one thing. And that is the voice of God speaking in his word. So if you're not learning from scripture, you're going to be prideful. You're going to be impatient. You're not going to be able to encourage those around you. So step number one has to be, Lord, break me before your word and humble me and increase in me so I can be a blessing to others. Amen. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word and we pray that you would help us to worship you this day as you have called us to in your word. We praise you that you are the God of patience and of encouragement and that your word has the same virtues and powers because it is your word. And we pray that you would make them effectual in us, that you would work them in us and that we would not live to please ourselves, but that we would live to delight to do your will and to serve one another, to encourage one another, to be patient with one another for Christ's sake. Amen.